Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Michael Clapparmbeth and Marie Asensio. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines, that is B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. But now, there is no doubt that the COVID-19 health crisis has impacted the global economy and entrepreneurship. However, not all sectors have been impacted equally. While the lack of in-person interaction has benefited some, it has severely hindered others. In today's episode, we are first joined by Professor Shiri Bresnitz to discuss the consequences of the pandemic and the technology and knowledge transfer between universities. We are then joined by Almira Cuisson, CEO of Global Retail Experience for the Middle East and founder of Phoenix Global Retail, to examine the new and creative ways in which the retail industry has adapted to e-commerce. Professor Shiri Bresnitz is an assistant professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. She's also a member of the advisory board of Monash University's Better Governance and Policy Research Focus Area and the Ontario IP Implementation Panel. Her research examines regional economic development with a focus on the role of universities. Her book, The Fountain of Knowledge, which we will be referencing today, analyzes universities' relationship with government and industry, focusing on the biotechnology industry as a case study. It is without saying that her work has informed policymaking at the local, national, and international levels, and it is her greatest pleasure to be welcoming her to be on the headlines. I think that your expertise and your research is going to be very valuable to the conversation because when we hear about the impacts of COVID-19 and the pandemic and their impact on the economy, most of the conversation is geared towards firms and, and businesses. But I think that an important pillar in the post-pandemic recovery that is not talked about enough is going to be universities. And one of the ways in which I think that the universities have been affected by the pandemic is best reflected in the ways in which universities conduct technology transfer. So to start us off and provide our audience with some context, could you please provide an overview on how university technology transfer works And what exactly is technology transfer? Well, so technology transfer is really the transition of research into the public domain, right? So the faculty works on new research in labs all the time. And, you know, we publish, but there is a difference between publication to actual products and services that can be created based on that research. By law, universe, you know, faculty is supposed to disclose any research that has a p- potential of ap- application to the university, right? So there's a form they're supposed to uh, fill in and send it in to the university. Then the university makes a decision whether to patent that technology, and then there's an option to license it to companies, Or, you know, a faculty can create, a faculty or a postdoc uh, can create a, um, a, a startup based on that technology. Now, this is, you know, what I just described is a general tech transfer process. However, the process is different between countries. The most common process, as I described, is, is based on the Bayh-Dole Act from the U.S. 1980 which has been copied all around the world. The Bayh-Dole Act says that any invention that the research was funded by the federal government is owned by the university, which means that if I, as a professor, have any research that may be applicable 
whether it's an app, a new way of doing research, or new kind of material, I need to disclose that to the university. And the university is the owner of that technology. Even though when I, let's say we submit a patent, my name will appear there as the inventor, but the university will be the owner of the patent. In Canada, we do not have a Bayh-Dole Act. We do not have any regulation regarding ownership of research. So in most places, except the hospitals, the ownership is usually by the inventor. So the specific faculty or researcher that founded the technology. So each university in Canada has created their own regulations about technology transfer. At UFT, it's what we call a combined model. So officially, faculty needs to disclose to the university, but there is a discretion to decide who will be the owner and of the technology. In the hospitals, as I said, um, the ownership is by the hospitals. Thank you. And I'm curious to know, how does the public, the general public benefit from this technology transfer? Because so far, we've been talking about the owners and industries, but there must be some kind of benefits to the rest of the public. And do you think that these benefits have become more visible during the COVID-19 pandemic? And how so? Okay, so that that's a really good, that's a really good question. Because, you know, the government funds research, this is our funding, right, the public's funding, and where do we see the benefits? So when, when a technology matures and becomes a company that manufactures, you know, grows, employs people, that's, that's a benefit for direct benefit. But we also benefit by having new products like phones, like uh, new drugs and a way to administer the, these drugs, right? I think during COVID, we, we actually learned of how important this is, right? Because the benefits should not be focused just at the two pharmaceutical companies or three pharmaceutical companies who have delivered those drugs. And especially if you think about some of them, the, we have entire governments that paid a lot of money to contribute to this research all around the world. So, you know, between the creation of the MNRA drug, but there was an entire discussion about how to deliver that right? And they had to work very, very hard about new ways of creating that. So, you know, to your question, you know, it's not enough to have that technology if we can't find ways to benefit society with that. There's a lot of research now that is looking at innovation inequality, which is exactly your question is like, who benefits from these inventions? Are they concentrated only, you know, if you look at who made billions of dollars from an invention, usually it's, as you said, it's the inventor or the company. Of course, the investor who invented it, invested in that company. But what about the rest of the public? One of the best examples I can give you, it's not COVID-related example, but the car battery that Tesla is using is based on research that's done in Dalhousie. And that was funded for many, many years by the Canadian government but is now owned by Tesla. So that's a, a, a great example of how research funded by the public does not go back to the public. So in the topic of funding, as with everything else, funding for universities must have been significantly affected by the pandemic. What have been the effects of this and what kind of policies, whether that is government policy or industry policy, do you think would be needed to curb these effects? 
Yeah, so I, the biggest problem, I think, for, for researchers was the fact that they could not go in, especially initially to labs, to, to conduct research, uh, to meet people. So, you know, collaboration is a huge component for research. And so I can tell you that a lot of the research councils have allowed faculty to uh, carry research projects longer. So let's say the research project was supposed to end last year. They allowed people to carry it longer and use the funding longer for longer time in order to get there. You know, if you, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, where we are doing this discussion online and, you know, we're still not fully in person in the university. And yes, labs were the first one that opened for research, but it's not the same capacity. And one of the major things that I study is knowledge transfer. And you need that. You need the networks. You need to see people. You need to meet people. And you need, you, we learn from each other constantly. So our research has been terribly affected by the inability, both physically not being in the lab, but also our collaborations with co-authors, with uh, other researchers in our field, you know, not being able to go to conferences or, you know, conduct research meetings is a huge, huge impact on our, on our research. And to your second question, what can the government do? I think they're already doing that by, you know, allowing people to carry over the research. But I think there's certain area, especially related to COVID, that they know they should be supporting more in order to help us get to proof of concept uh, faster or to accelerate parts of our research and especially the results. You mentioned the importance of person-to-person relationships and the contributions of knowledge transfer between universities. And I know that you wrote a book called The Fountain of Knowledge in which you delve in this. And I was curious to ask you, in terms of the relationship with industries, um, how do universities change their technology transfer abilities? And how do these changes affect the relationship with bigger industries? The, the, the first thing is that it shouldn't change the way we conduct research, right? So there's two parts of the universities. There's contract research, which means an, a company can come to the university and say, we want to, you know, we know you specialize, U of T, you specialize in AI. We need somebody to help us with this part of our research. We are willing to fund that. And every university has a contract research department. And their regulations are very, very strict about what they can do and how they can do that. On the other hand, you have the basic research that nobody knows what we're going to find out, right? So you're doing, you're starting to work on something new and you don't know what's going to. And then that's the part where universities are, or, you know, administration at university can help the technology move to industry because, Yes, large multinational companies usually have fillers in the field and they know which faculty or which departments are working on what technology and they usually try to stay in touch. But the smaller companies, for example, do not have that access. So how do we make sure that that knowledge moves to industry? Now, the move part is usually very official, right? So there's usually a patent and then companies license that patent from the inventor or the university. It's depending, again, it can be an exclusive patent, it can be a license, sorry, or a non-exclusive, which means you can license it to multiple companies. Usually when you come to talk about vaccines, it's usually exclusive because nobody wants to, you know, no company wants to invest a lot of money in a product and then find out that, oh, you gave it also to somebody else, right? But that's part of 
finding the right uh, industry to or company to work with, that's the difficult part because researchers are working constantly on new things, right? We have PhD students and postdocs and I can tell you as somebody who's been working in this field for years, people have tried to find ways. How do we make sure that we report this? And how do we make sure that, you know, we let companies know? So some universities do these um, symposiums, right? So they say, okay, um, this semester, let's say, I'm just going to give you a few as an example. We have this amazing lab in AI. So our AI lab is going to do a showcase of recent technologies in AI and companies can actually pay in order to see the you know first results and maybe even get um, you know first right to license the technology. That's one option. The other option, as I said, is those either specific industry people that are who know who works on what and they are a liaison. And a lot of our faculty also have either consulting projects or have you know students that are now working in firms so they have those connections and they can say okay this is you know they they don't go into the you know patents but they say okay this is an area that we're working on you know maybe you are interested in that that's a way for us always have been a way for university to sponsor students you know phd students postdocs because as you know as universities we are very poor (laughs) so that's always a way to to help in funding our work to go more in depth on your book, The Fountain of Knowledge, which I find fascinating, by the way, and since we've mentioned the University of Toronto, you emphasize the impact of location on university technology transfers and hence their economic development contributions. So I wanted to go a bit more in detail on how this argument reflects the ability of Canadian universities to change or improve their knowledge and technology sharing capabilities. Yeah, so in the book, I talk about how Cambridge University in the UK and Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, helped develop the local biotechnology clusters, right? And, you know, we, we all want to be Silicon Valley and think that we can, you know, if, if just, if we can just follow whatever Stanford did, if you just give us a, a, a secret sauce, then every university can do that. And what I was trying to show in the book is that's not the case, right? It really depends on where you are located, uh, what kind of knowledge base you have in the region. So, you know, if you, if you are Cambridge, UK, you have the Sanger Center and for, for um, genetics and genomics, sorry. And you have Adam Brooks Hospital and the Molecular Biology Lab. So there's all, there's this concentration of knowledge in this field, right? And very strong departments in biology and in biotechnology that have, first-rate researcher in the field. They also recruit students that are very interested in that and they're going to develop that. Yale, for example, for years, you know, had zero industry around them because they are very strong in their medical school and biological sciences, not so much in ICT. So they missed the entire IT boom of the 90s. And you would say, oh, but that's Yale, right? How come they don't have all these startups? Well, because that's not the field. That's not what they worked in. They didn't have any, they, as, as a state, they didn't invest anything in investing directly in their in startups, whether they're from university or not. They didn't even have science parks, right? So where will these companies sit? So a lot of the questions about location are about the resources that are around that. And I, I think you, you hear a lot now, people talk about ecosystem of innovation. In a, in a city like Toronto, 
it's hard to say, okay, this impact comes from the university and not from the city, right? Because there's all these resources. We have the government here. We have a lot of the finance industry is centered here, right? But you forget Toronto for a second, take Waterloo, right? There is no really, there wasn't anything there before except the university. And a lot of the growth that, you know, you see there now in a lot of the smaller company is part of this university approach to create startup. So they actually made a decision that they want to help students create startups, right? And they created this call program where students go and work in companies and come back, right? So there's, there's this constant feed of students and companies. And now companies want to be there because, oh, these students are the top students in ICT. I think we have a study that shows that 90% of students in the STEM department actually finish in, in California after graduation, right? So that's a different story about brain drain, but you know, you want to be there. If you work in this area, you want to have your company there because you know you can get these students to come and work for you. So you create an entire area and by that, you are feeding the next generation of companies and students because everybody's there. Thank you for that, Professor Bresnitz. I now wanted to ask you a more personal question as a student that has been affected by the pandemic. Let's consider the increase in university fees, restrictions for international students, mental health struggles. How do you think that universities can ensure that they get the people with the necessary skills and entrepreneurial drive? How can they lead the post-pandemic research and innovation that is necessary to build resilience in the future while ensuring a good educational experience amongst the COVID-19 challenges? Yeah. So I have to say, I think the, the most important thing is to go back to the classroom, right? And I can tell you, we at the Masters in Global Affairs have done it this semester. We were, I'm teaching in the classroom. Yes, we all have masks on, but it, the learning is different. It's just, it's not the same when you're on Zoom, you know, the ability of the students to come after the class and talk to me, to talk to each other, right? Um, you know, how you interrupt people and you can interact with people during class time is much different when you're in person versus um, Zoom. The second is, I don't think it's COVID related, but for the entrepreneurship part is about supporting students who are interested in being an entrepreneur and providing courses in entrepreneurship that are not just available for students in the business school. And, and at UFT, we are very fortunate. We have 11 accelerators. So students who have a great idea have a place to go and you know meet mind-like people and take courses in entrepreneurship. I would say, I think we need more courses in entrepreneurship in, you know, in general at UFT. Uh, the U university just started a new course on intellectual property. So that one actually is online, the first part, the level one, and it's open, it's free for all university students. So anybody who's interested can go to the website of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at UFT, and there's a link to the IP course, which is, you know, my students do it every semester. And then there's the second part level, which is for people who actually want to establish firms. And it takes you step by step on, you know, how do you pick a name for your company? You know, how do you, you know, What's the question about trademark and copyright? So these are, you know, important tools that we as faculty need to give students. And I think this is COVID and not COVID, something that we need to do. And um, we need to understand that it's going to take time for everybody also to get used to going back to the classroom. 
you know, we, we have to do it at one point, but we also need to understand that not everybody will be able to do it at the same pace. And we need to be as flexible as we can. And hopefully with a lot of technology that we have added in the university to our classrooms, we can be more flexible. We, I know we do that. We record lessons. We allow students who are sick to join online. You know, we try our best to accommodate while we are moving back in person. That was Professor Shiri Bresnitz. Now I leave it up to my colleague, Michael, who will continue the conversation with her second guest, Almira Cuison, focusing on how COVID-19 is shaping the direction of the retail industry. With over two decades of retail experience, Almira has seen and contributed to the evolution of retail firsthand. She was the Vice President of Retail Operations for Roots, where she played a key role as one of the executive officers in the company's IPO in fall of 2017. She's currently the principal at Phoenix School of Retail, where she devotes her time developing business strategies and bespoke training programs. Prior to her time at Roots, she was with Holt Renfrew as the Vice President of Sales Strategy and Business Development, and at Gaspels Marciano as the National Director of Stores for Canada. In 2017, she was a contributor for the book Your Turn, which recognized Elmira as being amongst the 150 most successful women in Canada. With a strong focus on driving sales, strengthening culture, and people development, Elmira's success has consistently come from her ability to build a highly engaged team that is driven and excited to achieve extraordinary results. Outside of her work in retail operations, Elmira has facilitated and trained internationally. She has presented at the Visa Innovation Exchange in the Middle East, multiple women in leadership conferences in Toronto, as well as training conferences in Beijing, Shanghai, Dubai, London, Los Angeles, Miami, and across Canada, all with the goal of teaching to maximize and improve personal and company performance. The biggest thing I want to ask you is that given what's happened throughout COVID and where you were in Canada before you went to the UAE, how has COVID shifted your direction in terms of your career? Well, it's really interesting because I used to be a brick and mortar leader. So that meant that I operated stores specifically and it shaped my career a tremendous amount because what that meant is that they weren't actually looking for leaders who were specializing just in brick and mortar and stores, but they were looking for leaders that could do a full omni approach, meaning having e-tailers working with uh, partners like Amazon or Noon here in the Middle East became a different way of doing business for me. So in many ways, it's, just, it's not just shaped my life differently and my career differently, but anybody in retail had to take a step back and say, hey, does it make sense just to specialize in one domain? And the answer was no. So COVID really shifted, I think, a lot of focus away from just brick and mortar sales into a full omni-channel approach and they're asking leaders to stretch themselves and run wholesale and run and run retail business as well as e-com. So that's how my personal role has evolved because where I used to just oversee one way of doing business, now I oversee it all. So now, especially in the Middle East, this is something quite new. When you think of Canada, Canada is at least 10 to 15 years ahead of what's taking place in the Middle East. Roots was actually one of the very first pioneers in apparel that launched a, a full website. Here, it's still a very cash business. It's still a business that is heavily predicated on people coming into stores and giving that full experience. With COVID hitting, they changed the mindset because they put more emphasis on e-com in the Middle East than they ever have before. So it really catapulted and expedited that strategy of being, you know what, a player in brick and mortar and will dabble a little bit on online business to, oh my gosh, the only thing we could do during COVID is online business. 
So then you see a lot of the business transform and start hiring teams of people that really focus on how to develop that chain of, of selling versus brick and mortar. Interesting. And was this like in the works before COVID? It was on its way, but in a very slow way. So here's an example. I work for Shalhoub. I am uh, the general manager for guests. I run all the Middle East. So I run seven countries in all categories, like I said, in wholesale, e-com, brick and mortar, supply chain. And one of the things that I found really fascinating here, just in my current business, COVID became a permanent mindset. No longer did we think COVID was a moment in time. We're prepared now to expect that COVID will only morph into something else and that our state of readiness had to be a bit more prevalent when it came to omni-channel or online business being the, the number one way that we're going to protect ourselves and protect our business from any future disease. So what that meant was that how do we even ship to customers? When you really think about even in Canada, the standard time is two to three days. You see Canada shifting to being able to serve the customers in actually a few hours, in actually half a day. You see Amazon being able to deliver something. If you order it before noon, you could get it in your door, in your house, or 9 p.m. Well, if you, if you think about what the Middle East is doing, the Middle East is always fast to adapt when they believe. The Middle East can get product into somebody's door two hours. So if you buy a pair of shoes in our company in Shalhoub, you're actually able to order it online and within two hours, it's gonna be at your door. We have food service that now were in Canada. I'm not sure if it's changed at all in Canada, but you would order the night before and you would you'd be able to have the capacity to get it the next morning or the next day. Here in the Middle East, you're able to get everything in one hour. So can you imagine doing your groceries and you're thinking, oh, I ran out of milk. I ran out of, I ran out of food. I, I need a new pair of running shoes and a new pair of socks. In Dubai, you can get in an hour or two, max. So when you talk about something that has really been quite transformational, it's COVID that did that to us. It's COVID that pushed all the businesses to look critically at their models and say, how do we serve our customers? When we know the reason why customers go into stores, because they want to A, have a great experience, but also because they want something instant. They see something, they want to transact immediately. Ecom was never able to do that so quickly. We always had to wait days. But now they're, they're narrowing the gap and they're really paying more attention to, to the service model and how you get it as quick as if you're buying at a store. I'm glad you mentioned the UAE as a whole, but do you think there's a specific country that's leading the pack when it comes to this? Well, I could say that the U.S. has always been leading because they, they are great pioneers and you can see Amazon being at the forefront of that. When you, when you talk about the Middle East, you definitely have to use the UAE as an example, not just because I live here, but because I'm actually a customer. I was never an e-com customer until I went through COVID. It's not something that I like to do. And I'm going to use some examples when I was stuck in Canada and I had to order things online. The return process was arduous and extremely difficult because then I had to pack it up by the FedEx that would take it. And it would be just challenging and difficult. It may be A, not want to return anything and then just keep it, or it may be not want to buy it all. In the UAE, they will send somebody to pick up your return. In the UAE, sometimes the guy waits at the door while you try something on. And if it's not right, he'll take it back immediately. So there are many companies that are finding innovative ways to actually go and achieve that instant result as you do in brick and mortar. 
Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea that that was going on in the UAE. Do you think that's a, just a short run thing or do you think that is something that would be implemented in the long term for these companies? It's quite costly. So if you think of the business model, historically, e-com is used as a platform to clear goods. It's easier to shop sale on e-com than it is in brick and mortar. So people had a natural tendency to buy when things are on sale. It was far more instant and was far easier through e-com. But now with the emphasis of service, now we're seeing also a shift of people um, buying more regular price. It was not a profitable business model, but we've demonstrated that it can be if you have the right service model. Because more people are willing to pay regular price if the service is there. And before it, it was literally buy online and then maybe in three days you'll get it. And by the way, it'll be really difficult for you to return. You'd have to either go in stores or pack it up and ship. And is there specific firms that are using this model the most or is it broadly used by every firm in the UAE? It's certainly in its infancy stage. I could tell you that retailers like Namshi are doing this and they're doing this really well. Amazon is also doing this uh, very well. And Level Shoes in the Shalhoub group is, is leading the pack in our company. And how else do you think firms have specifically innovated or adapted throughout COVID-19 and plan on adapting post-COVID as well? Well, if I think outside of um, e-com, because that I think has been the major change, I do believe the way that we look at the work life is completely transformed. I guess in its best stage, I think that the work-life balance has been better because you see the massive exodus out of downtown Toronto, as an example, because it's not necessary to work in an office, right? Mm -hmm. So you see there's been a strong shift that we have demonstrated as a population that you can be productive if you work remotely. Right now, I am a perfect example of this. I'm doing this interview in the UK, but I have been working the entire day. I've been on conference calls. I've been in meetings. Although I do love the personal connection, what it has allowed me to do is think a bit more non-traditionally where I don't have to see my team every single day to get the job done because if you hire the right people, they could work remotely and still be equally as effective. In fact, in many ways, more people have stated that they're actually more productive when they get the one or two days at home because they get to focus on their work a bit more seriously. What I mean by a bit more seriously is that sometimes you get interrupted so many times in a day that it doesn't keep you, keep you focused and it doesn't allow you the time to finish your task when you want. Now, with that being said, I do think that it's an error, a massive error for businesses to completely just do work remotely because it's very difficult to build a team and build team spirit when it's only done on screen. I think it's absolutely essential that there's a blended mix of both. And because I've lived through this, we're on year two of COVID, that the most successful teams that I have built have been with the amalgamation of both concepts and not just purely online and not purely just face-to-face in an office. A lot of the retailers, I can confidently say this, both in North America as well in the Middle East, is that they have reduced hours. So what's really funny is that Canada is an example. I believe they're still on reduced hours even after the height of COVID. They're still only open from 11 to 7. And yet some stores and some businesses, they're able to do the exact same amount of volume of business in that short time period than previous when they were open from nine to nine. And so it's, it has taught us a lot. There's been a reduction of hours, I think, all over the world. 
And what, what they have done is that, let's say, for example, if you use 100 hours in a store, they've reduced it by 20%, maybe even 30%, but they're allocating those hours on other activities, like in e-com, like in click and collect, like in pick up in-store. So they're still using those hours, but they're reappropriating it in a way that serves a different business model because, again, it's fully omnichannel. And so, yes, definitely reduction of hours across all retail has taken place because the mall hours have reduced and they're finding that they didn't need to be open that long in order to be productive. Wow. Uh, Given those numbers and and given how firms have been able to reduce their hours in their brick and mortar stores and then compensate with online sales, do you think that makes it easier for mom and pop shops or entrepreneurs that want to enter the market for the retail industry? Well, I really think that anybody who wants to open up a business really has to think in an innovative way. It's no longer you just open up a brick and mortar store. It's about where do you open up this brick and mortar store? Should it be a pop-up? And what I mean by that, there's a big transformational shift as well, too, that a lot of entrepreneurs these days, they won't commit to a 10-year lease. Traditionally, if you want to open up a store in Canada, it's 10 years. Traditionally, if you want to open up a store in in the Middle East, it's a five-year lease. That's a big undertaking. It's a big financial investment. And there's a lot of risk involved, right? What a lot of people are doing now, if you are a new emerging brand or you want to test your concept, they're they're going to other platforms like Shopify. They're also getting pop-ups where they sign a six-month lease term in the mall where they just stand and they show their product for a short period of time. Or now, even with the big department stores, they're collaborating with small businesses and allowing them to showcase a certain collection or a certain idea that's innovative for six months or less. So you can see how people are now testing the waters a bit more carefully, not putting a huge investment, initial investment in in, in a five or 10 year commitment, and they're trying their concepts. And they're making sure they're partnering with other other retailers that are very powerful that could draw traffic onto a website or draw traffic through a department store. Interesting. And do you think that given the effects of COVID, do you think e-com will still see the same levels of use or do you think it'll go back to more brick and mortar? I'm going to answer that question in, in two ways. Uh, first, first statement I'm going to make will always hold true. Ecom will only get stronger. It'll only be more innovative. It'll only be more captivating. What I mean by captivating, they're going to start to gamify even your shopping experience. They're going to connect with you in ways that um, they've never been able to connect with you before. They'll have personal shoppers that will, will be live for you on screen to help you make some really good decisions versus um, having one of those robots that assist you, we're going to start to go live in servicing our customers, but on screen. Okay, so there's going to be a very quick departure on a very static approach to dealing with customers through e-com through something far more interactive. So with that interaction, you're going to still build relationships, but through screen. So that's going to continue to only become stronger and stronger and stronger. When it comes to brick and mortar, the evolution is quite clear. It has to be a holistic experience. So anybody that wants to open up a store, it can't just be a transactional experience. There should be something tied to history. There should be something extremely innovative, whether it be serving teas through leaf plants that fall from from the roof. When I talk about being really innovative, it's a non-traditional approach to giving a customer a delightful experience, surpassing their expectations and making it really wow. What is the true differentiation between why somebody would buy a t-shirt in my store versus a t-shirt 
in another store? Well, it's how you sell it. It's not necessarily the product itself, but it's the experience that you give the customer. So in UAE, I think there are a million examples and you've seen what the UAE has done. And they not only make everything bigger and better, but they, they are so incredibly innovative in the way that they approach their business because it's something unexpected. And the more you give unexpected experience to consumers, the more it becomes a moment for them to return because it becomes an experience, right? And if you really think about it, and this is very, very basic, if you think about maybe you could be too young to understand this, or people listening might be too young to understand this, but they were saying death to movie theaters when they were, when you're able to, I guess, rent videos through Betamax or VHS. They said, for sure, movie theaters across the world is going to crash and burn. No one's going to go. Wasn't true, was it? Because what did the movie theaters do? They changed the experience. Now you can go to a movie theater and you can completely recline on a leather couch and you have a personal butler and a pillow and a blanket, right? Mm -hmm. That's how they innovate. You have to think in extraordinary uh, ways to be able to give an extraordinary experience that's really out of the box. And so that's a perfect example of how that experience saves an industry and saves a mom and pop idea. Because quite frankly, if you think about it, VHSs were, like died and it was actually the theater that remained a strong storefront for that experience for the customer. So people want to connect. People want to socialize. That will never go away. The experience is, is something that customers clearly value. And just like you mentioned, VHS died out. Technology will always adapt and change. And same with e-com. In combination with that, do you think most firms will bring try to bring that customer experience that they experience in-store to online? Or do you think that's just a Middle East thing with personal shoppers? Everybody's finding a way in North America. Even when I was working at Roots, we were finding ways to connect with the customers in a in a different fashion. So there, there's always something happening. And there's, like I said, there's gamification that's happening even online where you could play games and purchase at the same time. You could see the way that social e-com has really, really become a strong platform to sell because you're merging a social experience by being on Instagram and Facebook. And you're like, wow, you know what? I really like that outfit. And then when you hover... You, you could see, hey, this person bought this at guess. Oh, wow, take a look. It takes you directly to the website. It's making all the experience so seamless because the one thing that we, how we've been very transformative in our approach in retail is that customers don't want to click a thousand times to buy a product. They want to see it. They want to love it. They want to click it twice. They want to pay for it. That's what they want to do. So a lot of businesses, especially in North America, are moving in that direction where it's, there's very few clicks to be able to buy that product that you really want. You're able to see the price immediately. You don't have to click on a website to do that. It brings you right to the page that you want, and it gives you that price, and then you pay for it. So that's something I think that's going to only get better through time. Interesting. And throughout COVID, you think that how much of an impact has Instagram had with that feature? Huge. How else did we socialize? <laughs> how else? We couldn't see each other. <laughs> so the only things you could do is see each other digitally, share our lives digitally. So Instagram power and the rise of it. I mean, we can't even quantify that. And same with any social media, TikTok as well too, right? So a lot of TikTokers, they became extremely world famous. They're regular people, but they were just trying to share their lives during a moment of chaos for us and a great moment of sadness. They were bringing joy to others through the silliness of what they're doing. But now 
TikTok is one of the main vehicles that businesses are using in order to connect with our customers and to reach them. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're merging social and business together. And in your case with your company, how much of an increase in partnerships with influencers and TikTok and Instagram stars did you find because of COVID? Well, I could tell you that not just for the Middle East, but the majority of the world are using social influencers as the main vehicle to drive awareness to the brand because people follow people not necessarily companies, right? It's what they stand for, what they represent. So uh, the people that talk about the company that seem extremely authentic, that love the brand, that's able to talk about it in ways that could, could reach a certain generation and talk about the values and how it attaches to theirs are the ones that are most successful. To give you an idea, the majority of my marketing spend in the millions are it's going to be given to influencers, micro-influencers especially. So some influencers start off at $125,000, U.S. dollars a post, right? One post. Micro-influencers are people who are a bit more authentic and people who have great following may not be in the millions, but certainly have a strong following that they just want to wear what they like. And when we see them wear the product, we say, hey, would you like to be a micro-influencer for us? And they're just happy to get free product, but their reach is even that much more powerful. So the way businesses are looking at it is that, look, you can't afford to spend $125,000 on one post. But what you can do is spend $125,000 giving away free product for a year, giving it to 25 micro-influencers that'll blog for you for an entire year. So there's different ways that you could go about achieving different things. You just have to know who your right influencer partners are. So I guess in some ways, COVID was the Kickstarter to all of the, the innovations that were going to be happening anyways within the retail industry. It, sounds like. it was already happening. It's just how it has accelerated and how it went from zero to 100 mm-hmm. in a way that I think nobody was expecting. Nobody was expecting the rise of e-com to be what it is. So just to give you some rough numbers, uh, we would be happy in the past for e-com to penetrate business at 10%. I'm just talking just in general um, as a group. And maybe 15% was good. You see some of the Canadian averages after COVID being a 25% penetration mm-hmm. in e-com. So you're thinking of over 100% in most businesses, more than doubling the normal volume because of COVID alone. Now, will that regress a little bit? Maybe, maybe yes, because as brick and mortar gives even more exceptional experience and has more events and connects with the customer a different way, yeah, you're, you're going to see an ebb and flow, but it's not necessarily um, a way that we think that they should compete. It's the way that you grab and the way that you, you reach a larger audience because some people are brick and mortar people. They just want the experience and others only want to connect on screen. Now you're getting both. If you're a true omni-channel business, you're getting both. And that's what you want. If you look at some of the top malls, like if you think of Toronto Eaton centers, and if you think of the Yorkdales of the world, and if you think of huge centers in the U.S., if you look at the Big Apple, there's a lot of centers that people will have presence in. They do sell a lot, but they're not profitable because most of the money goes on rent. What they do do and how they help the organization, if they're not so profitable, is that they become windows for the organization, meaning that they become known players. Where there's high tourism, 
the more exposure that you have to people that are visiting, the better it is for your brand. Because your reach will not only be the locals in the country, but your reach becomes international. So it's still very, very important to be in the Yorkdales of the world. It, and you can be profitable, don't get me wrong, you absolutely can. We were in the businesses that I've helped run before. But they're not as profitable as actually smaller locations like Masonville Mall in London, Ontario. The, the, you actually make more profit in those centers because rent is much lower. But you need the Toronto Eaton Centers and the Yorkdales to exist where you make a little profit or sometimes not at all to drive the interest as a brand so that way they do visit the Masonvilles of the world. Is that still a strategy that's being implemented now during yes. COVID? Or? Yes. Interesting. Well, Ali, thank you so much for giving me all this information and giving all our viewers a look into how the retail industry and how it's evolving. I think all the stuff you said, I can totally agree with. Even myself, I haven't been really an e-com sort of person, but having a better experience online has kind of made me gravitate towards that a little bit more. So I'm really glad to hear that specifically what some of these firms are, are doing. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you and I wish you all the best and I hope this uh, conversation helps a little. Once again, that was Almir Kuzan. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines at CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on entrepreneurship and how it is shaping the direction of the retail industry and the transfer of knowledge and technology in universities. Today's show was produced by Maria Asensio and Michael Colaparmouth. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out the podcast for all our episodes on our website at beyondtheheadlines.net. As well, you can also check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or interested in innovation and public policy, you can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to join us next week as we continue to take a look at public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.